Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. The most reliable evidence that a person is truly saved is continued faith in and obedience to Jesus Christ. If I'm looking to something other than that, I might be looking at something that's really unreliable. The only way to have just that absolute certainty that our faith is genuine is that if it's current. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Hebrews. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Hebrews, chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, in a message titled, A Rest for the People of God. Now, here's Pastor Brian. So we're picking up here in the fourth chapter in the middle of the author's warning to his readers not to repeat the sins of their forefathers by failing to continue to trust God. And the author is, as we've seen, he's using the ancient Israelites as an example to that group of Jewish believers that he's writing to at the time. He keeps going back to them, using them as an example, and essentially saying, look, don't do what they did. So what happened with their ancestors, of course, is that they trusted God to lead them out of Egypt, but they did not believe him to take them into the promised land and subsequently died in the wilderness. And so for his readers, he's not wanting to see this kind of thing happen to them. So they have seemingly believed in Jesus as their savior, but now are drifting toward unbelief and considering a return to Judaism. So his concern is that perhaps some of them have come short of a true saving faith. His concern is that maybe it's been just perhaps an emotional commitment rather than a a deep, genuine uh, commitment of the heart and that they, because they're actually contemplating a, a return to the old system, he's concerned that maybe they haven't really embraced salvation in the truest sense. And so he, he uses this terminology here about having come short of it. The most reliable evidence that a person is truly saved is continued faith in and obedience to Jesus Christ. You see, that's the most reliable evidence. If I'm, if I'm looking to something other than that as, as evidence for my salvation, I, I might be looking at something that's really unreliable. The, the only way to have just that you know, absolute certainty that our faith is genuine is that if it's current, if my faith is something less than it was initially, if I believed in Jesus in a much more intense way in the past and now I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sort of wavering as, as to whether or not 
I, I'm still believing in him or, or trusting in him, then there, there's no real security in that kind of a position. So to turn from Christ, having once followed him, or to live in open rebellion to his word can indicate that the salvation that one thought they had or claimed to have had was never a true salvation. It was something short of true saving faith. And that's the concern of the author. That, that maybe their faith was something short of a true saving faith. And this is a hard reality, but it is a reality. There are people all over the place who have been in church for years and who go through the religious motions and who would identify themselves as Christians. But the fact of the matter is they don't have a true saving faith. They've come short of it. They've never really come into that commitment to Christ and that real true acknowledgement of him being really the Lord of their lives. And it's possible to come short of true saving faith, to have something that looks externally like its salvation, but the fact of the matter is it's really not a true salvation. And how do we know? Because it doesn't last. It doesn't stand the test of time. True faith stands the test of time. And so this is the concern of the writer to the Hebrews, that their faith, which is being tested right now, because as I pointed out before, they're going through challenging times. They are living through exclusion from their community. They're living through the loss of position in society. And in some cases, the loss of their belongings and so forth for, uh, through persecution. They're living in a time of discrimination against them because of their faith. And all of this is, is causing them to rethink whether they really want to continue to follow Jesus. And since they're rethinking that, the author is questioning whether or not their salvation is legitimate. Sure, there's difficulties. Sure, there's hardship. Sure, there's challenges. There can be persecution and all of these kinds of things can be going on that might give the devil an opportunity to come in and tempt us to go back to our former lives or just cool it with your commitment to Jesus, you know, just tone it down and, you know, go to church once in a while and all that's fine, but you don't need to take this so seriously. The enemy uses these kinds of challenging circumstances to tempt us in this direction, but this is nothing new. This is something that every generation of Christians goes through. Every Christian person goes through this to some degree at some point or another, and the important thing is that we persevere, that we endure, that we keep holding on and trusting. So again, this is the emphasis. This is what he's wanting them to really get hold of and permanently lay hold of. So here in the verses that we read, he speaks of this rest that God is making available and offering to his people. And so let's look at the rest for a moment. So he says, therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, there's a promise of, of entering his rest. What is he talking about? Well, I think the word rest here is a, he's using it metaphorically for salvation. 
And the rest is ultimately and fundamentally a future thing, yet the future has penetrated the present. You see, what we have to keep in mind is that there is an end to all of this. This is what we tend to forget. We tend to forget that life is going to come to an end for every one of us. And and for the person who's looking for ease and comfort right now and to alleviate the suffering and the difficulty that accompanies faith in Christ, that person is not remembering that it's all going to come to an end for every single one of us. And so when he's talking about this rest, he's, he's ultimately talking about the fact that there is this eternal state of bliss and glory that we are one day going to arrive at, but there's also, of course, the present aspect of it. So believers enter God's rest through faith in Christ now, but we will not experience the fullness of the rest until we go to be with the Lord or the Lord comes to establish his kingdom here on the earth. So our present rest is that we are not working to save ourselves or to try to earn God's love or favor. We are resting in the finished work of Christ. That, that's, the, that's the present sense of the rest that he's talking about. So that's the present. But then, like I said, the future rest will be when our labor here on earth is done and we enter into that kingdom and that intimate eternal relationship with God that we were created for. So now the author is, he's talking to them about this rest and he's afraid, he says, that they might have come short of it. And then he, he reminds them of the fact that their ancestors, for indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, the ancient Israelites, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest. So they had the same message back in those days, the, pointing back to their fathers who came out of Egypt. They had the same message, but it didn't benefit them because they didn't believe it. And so what he's saying is don't let this happen to you. And so there is a rest, he says, for the people of God. Now, as he goes on in the passage that we read, he uses the term Sabbath to describe this rest. And again, this is extremely relevant in the context because these are Jews, and for Jews, both then and now, one of the most revered concepts in Judaism is the Sabbath. And and for them there would have been the thought. you got to put yourself in their position. Going back to Judaism at this point seems extremely attractive because in Judaism, you have all the security. You have a temple. You have a priesthood. You have these sacrifices. You have the Sabbath day. You have all of these things that you can just go re-engage in. As a follower of Jesus, you have these you know, little groups of believers that are being excluded from the larger society that are being persecuted and all of that. So they can just go right back into the establishment. And for the Jew, it's like, oh yes, the Sabbath. The Sabbath was so important to them. 
One of the greatest controversies between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day was over the Sabbath. Jesus was in conflict with the religious leaders over the Sabbath. It was his refusal to accept and abide by their interpretation of the Sabbath that motivated the Pharisees to try to kill him. But here in the passage, in verse 9, where he says there remains therefore a rest for the people of God, the word there is literally Sabbath. There remains therefore a Sabbath for the people of God. So what is he saying? Well, first of all, let's understand what the Sabbath was truly intended by God to be. Number one, it was to commemorate God resting from creating the universe. In six days, the Lord made the heaven and the earth. On the seventh day, he rested. And therefore, we were to remember that, or the the Jews were to remember that later when the law was given to them. So it was to commemorate God resting. Secondly, it was to give the people of Israel a day of rest. The rabbis, like I said, they, they turned the Sabbath into this extremely burdensome thing. Jesus said, you guys don't get it. The Sabbath was made for man, not the reverse. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. It was made to be a blessing to man, but they had made it a burden to man. Jesus disregarded their view of the Sabbath, and he said, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath myself, by the way. So secondly, it was to give the people of Israel a day of rest. But thirdly, it was to point prophetically to the rest Messiah would bring to his people. So here's the truth of the matter. Jesus is our Sabbath. And for them who are thinking, we need to go back to the old system, we need to go back to the old ways, we need to go back to the Sabbath, the writer is saying, Jesus is our Sabbath. The whole Sabbath was pointing to him. That's one of the reasons why the Sabbath is not included as binding anywhere in the New Testament. That is why somebody like Rabbi Saul of Tarsus, a.k.a. the Apostle Paul, would write things like this. He wrote to the Colossians. He said, so let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substances of Christ. So you see, Jesus is our Sabbath. And so since this is the case, verse 11 says this, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Let us be diligent to enter that Sabbath. Let us be diligent to enter his rest. In other words, he's saying a similar thing to what what Peter would write in his second epistle. He's saying, make your calling and election sure. Make sure you're really saved. Make sure you're really trusting Christ and you're not just being religious. You're not just going through the externals of religion. Make sure that your confidence and your faith are in Jesus. And not only make sure that they're presently in him, but make sure that that's where your confidence remains. And then he says this, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, I want you to notice something. 
what we usually miss because we isolate the verse, we usually miss the actual context. The actual context of this statement is judgment. That's the, the first application of it. You see, notice again, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow as the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. What he's saying is, look, you need to take heed to this. You need to be careful. You need to be diligent because God's word is true and what he said stands and he will judge those who turn from him. That's what he's saying in the passage. His word is living and powerful. What he has said, he means. In many ways, you can say what God has said is who God is. Some people want to separate God from his word. And they say things like, well, you know, I believe in a God who is love, but I don't believe in a God who will judge. Well, that's an attempt to separate God from his word. You can't do it. God and his word are so connected, they're inseparable. Because remember, the written word has come from the living word. Who is the living word? The living word is the second person of the triune God. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the word. So it's impossible to separate God from his word. So the word of God is living and powerful. What God says is who he is. It's what he means. And disobedience is fatal, is what the author is saying. Because the word of God is living and powerful. And so as we close, two things. Number one, God's promises are true, but equally his warnings are real. Let's not fall into the trap of just, you know, glorying in the promises of God, but ignoring the warnings of God or, or trying to dismiss them or, or maybe downplay them in some, some way. No, both are facts. His promises are true, but his warnings are real. And we have to accept that. For those who trust Christ, the promise of entering his rest is a reality, but for those who reject Christ, the promise of judgment is also a reality. It's not a pleasant reality, but it is a reality. And so for us, as we gather, we have to take all of this very seriously because as I said earlier, we all have an appointed time of departure from this life. And... We all have an accountability before God. And as we read here in verse 13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Wow. Think of that. We must give account. There's a day coming when every human being will give an account to God. And so since everything is naked and open before the eyes of him to whom we must give account, we must give account. We need to make sure because the word of God is living and powerful because what God said is reality because what he promised he will do. We need to fall into line under those truths. 
And finally, there is a rest. That's the beauty. There is a rest for the people of God. There is a rest for the people of God. And listen, only the people of God can rest. You know, those who are rebelling against God, those who are turning away from God, listen, there's no rest. There's no peace. You hear stories of people like, oh, you know, I I had so much turmoil and I was so, you know, I was always feeling guilty and condemned. And and then I I just threw off all of that belief in God and, oh, I, I feel so good now. I'm at rest. I'm at peace. No, you're not. That's such a lie. You can't be. No one's at rest. There's no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. There is no peace. And you know, the reality is everybody labors under some sort of a burden and there is no rest from those burdens. And it's not just religious people that labor under burdens. Irreligious people labor under burdens as well because, you know, everybody has a code of conduct. Everybody has an ideology. Everybody has some standard that they try to live up to or conduct themselves uh, according to. And, and, you know, in some cases, it's completely secular. It's just this group of people that you uh, have held in high respect and you want to impress them. So everything you do is to win their approval. You're right there. There's no rest is you're not sure if they're going to approve you. You're not sure if you're dressed the right way. You're not sure if you uh, have the right car. You're not sure if you're listening to the right music. You're not sure if you're whatever. The list goes on and on and on. And we, we just live in those kinds of states. There's no escaping it. The only place you can find rest is in Christ. Because when Christ accepts us and gives us rest, that's all that matters And we come out from under all of that other bondage. And of course, we're freed from the religious element of that kind of a thing as well. And so, as I close today, my question is to you, do you have that rest? Have you entered into his rest? Or have you come short of it? Are you still trying to work your way to God? Are you still trying to win his love, his favor? Maybe it's just because you haven't understood his grace, but you need to lay hold of his grace. But maybe some are saying, well, you know, I'm not even considering his grace. I'm just going to be the best person I can. There's no rest there, but there's rest in Christ as we put our faith and trust in him. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weighed down, all of you who are burdened, and I will give you rest. Make sure you've come to him. And now let's join Pastor Brian in the studio as he shares about this month's resource on Back to Basics. There are certain Christian books that we would refer to today as classics, books that have just stood the test of time and generation after generation of Christians have benefited from them. There is a book that is recently published called Gentle and Lowly, written by Dane Ortland. And, you know, many people are already saying that this is a Christian classic. Now, Gentle and Lowly is taken from the passage in Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus says of himself that he is gentle and lowly in heart. 
And so this book is looking at Jesus through that lens, and we're going to find out that Jesus is much more gracious, much more patient, much more loving than we ever imagined him to be. So this is a fantastic book, and I highly recommend it, especially for anyone who has a tendency to feel like they failed God, they've let him down, or you're not sure about God's love for you. This book is going to, I think, forever give you the right perspective on the heart of Jesus for his children. So check it out, Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers by Dane Ortland. Again, this month's resource is a book titled Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers by Dane Ortland. You can order the book Gentle and Lowly by going to our website, backtobasicsradio.com. Scroll down until you see the photo of it and then click on the donate button. When you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you the book Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. It's our way of saying thank you for your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue next time with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Hebrews. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.